Hello and welcome to Mother Bodies, the podcast about health after birth and why it matters. I'm your host, Rosie Taylor. I'm a health journalist and I'm also a mum. In this series, I'm asking some brilliant, wise and witty guests to share their thoughts on how the politics of postnatal health affects us all and the big ideas which could change our lives for the better. Most importantly, we'll also be sharing our own stories of health and recovery after birth and our honest experiences of motherhood. That's because it's only by sharing our stories that we can empower each other to ensure we all know what to expect and to make sure we all get the care and support we need, both after birth and throughout motherhood. This is Mother Bodies. So talking to me today all the way from Portland in Oregon is Maya Duesenberry. Maya is a journalist, editor and author of the book Doing Harm, the truth about how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed and sick. Maya has written extensively about feminist topics, including abortion stigma, rape culture and gender bias. Before becoming a full-time writer, she also worked at the National Institute for Reproductive Health in the United States. I wanted to talk first about Doing Harm, your book. The whole focus of the book is about how medicine is essentially biased against women. Can you tell us a little about what you mean by medicine being biased against women and why you think this is? Yeah, so in my book, I looked at gender bias within medicine on a few different levels. First, I looked at how sort of the knowledge base that doctors have is skewed towards knowing more about men and their bodies and their health concerns. And that's really the legacy of many decades when women were really left out of a lot of clinical research and their health conditions were kind of low on the research agenda. And then I also look at it on a more kind of person-to-person level within the doctor-patient relationship and look at how gender stereotypes about women and especially this kind of idea that women are prone to hysteria and kind of overly emotional response to pain or other symptoms really impacts the way that doctors treat them and leads to a tendency for women's symptoms to be dismissed as anxiety or depression or just stress. So those are the really two big issues that I look at and I think really do kind of conspire to lead to subpar care for women. Absolutely. And in this series, we're looking particularly about women's bodies when they become mothers and the treatment that women receive after pregnancy, whether or not that results in live birth. So one issue that comes up time and time again is of women being dismissed and their concerns about health waived aside, um, either during labor or at any point afterwards. Sometimes it's sort of months and years afterwards that women are still asking for help for health problems and not getting it. I mean, is this something that you think is particularly an issue with medicine's treatment of new mothers and this sort of idea that like, oh, a woman's just overreacting because she's had a baby or, oh, you've had a baby. It's normal to have these problems. Or do you think actually this is just something that happens to all women? I would say it's both. I think there is a more general tendency for this to happen to women in all kinds of clinical contexts with all kinds of conditions. My own interest in this topic started when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And I had a pretty straightforward diagnosis journey myself. But after that, I started learning about uh, a lot of other autoimmune patients' stories. And autoimmune patients are disproportionately women and a lot tell similar stories of, of having their health concerns kind of brushed off as stress or you know, told they're overly concerned about their health. So I do think it's part of a more general trend. But I think that our sort of 
stories and myths around childbirth and pregnancy, I think, can really exacerbate that tendency. You know, the the sort of idea that this is, you know, it is a natural <laughs> process that our bodies go through can then be kind of wielded against women to say, you know, well, if you're still having problems, then it's all in your head or you're just too tense sensitive. And, you know, this is part of the normal healing process. That can be a way that things that are very much aren't part of the normal healing process, or even if they are still need to be addressed, um, can kind of be swept aside. You know, a good kind of example of this, uh, one of the women I interviewed for my book was told for nine months during her pregnancy that all of her symptoms were just related to pregnancy. And then as soon as she gave birth, suddenly the exact same symptoms became just just motherhood. Um, So I think there is a way that sort of women, no matter where they are in their sort of reproductive cycles or journey, can be dismissed in very gendered ways like that. And what was wrong with the woman that you interviewed in the end? You know, I can't remember exactly, but it was some sort of autoimmune disease. Okay, yeah. So yeah. actually nothing to do with either nothing to do with motherhood. Yes, yes. That reminds me, I interviewed a woman recently um, who suffered suddenly from very severe headaches and dizziness and she got very upset about it and the doctor said, because she had a nine-month-old baby, the doctor said, oh, well, you must have postnatal depression and here are some mm-hmm. antidepressants. And it turned out that actually she'd had a stroke. And oh, wow. Because she was a new mom. There was a sort of idea that, oh, well, you know, it's hard, isn't it, being a new mom? And women get very, I think, patronized, really, when they try and approach medical professionals. For right. Help. Is that something that you found in your research that, that was a sort of patronizing attitude, no matter how well-informed women were when they were going in to see a medical professional? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think women's symptoms, I think, are dismissed in lots of different ways. You know, I kind of focused a lot on the sort of way that they're often psychologized and how that relates to this long history of hysteria. Um, But also, I think a really big way is that they're often normalized. And I think that's especially true when it comes to symptoms related to reproduction. So tens of women who are experiencing pelvic pain are told, you know, it's just cramps, you know, this is just normal menstruation. I think that's a really hard dismissal to kind of push back against because we often don't have a very good idea of what's normal when it comes to women's bodies. You know, there's a lot of broader cultural myths that tell us that, oh yeah, you know, periods are just supposed to be painful. So it's really easy to, when a doctor's telling you this is normal, just think, well, yeah, maybe I just, maybe this is what everybody else is experiencing and I just can't kind of tolerate it as well. And I think with pregnancy and and after birth, that's a, you know, a very similar dynamic happens where we don't often go into these experiences knowing much about what is normal and what isn't. And yeah, that provides a lot of room for doctors to just say, well, yeah, this is normal. I think it often takes, you know, talking to other people about their experiences to kind of have that moment of realization that this probably isn't normal. Or if it is, you know, this is something that we should be talking about and researching and figuring out why this is happening to so many people. Absolutely. And it's interesting what you said about sort of saying, oh, well, it just must be me not able to cope. I mean, I think that's a particularly big issue in the postnatal period and that women possibly are at risk of kind of internalizing these issues and saying, oh, well, if everybody else is coping, it must be me not coping well enough, not that my symptoms are more severe or then perhaps I need more help. Right. Absolutely. 
And I do think, you know, one of the big takeaways from my interviews with so many women with, you know, again, a range of conditions who had similarly been dismissed um, was just how easy it is for even the most empowered of us to internalize that dismissal. You know, I think we can't underestimate how much authority, you know, medical professionals really still wield, even when you feel like in other contexts of your life, you're pretty educated and have a lot of authority within that doctor-patient relationship. Patients are really, you know, disempowered in a lot of ways. And it's really easy to start to distrust your own instincts about what's wrong when you have a medical professional saying nothing's wrong. And when you, yeah, don't have access to information from other people that might challenge that, you know, you only have your own individual experience with this one particular doctor, it becomes easy to say, well, that felt a little off or I felt really unheard, but maybe that was just, you know, one bad apple or he was having a bad day or maybe I should have done something better to advocate for myself. And so for a lot of women that I interviewed, it really took kind of hearing the stories of other women to realize, hey, this wasn't just about me. <laughs> this was part of a larger systemic problem that is not something that we can individually solve. And I think it's really interesting what you say about the doctor-patient dynamic and the sort of power that doctors have when we say, I think it's this. And they say, no, 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 don't be silly. And you're like, oh, okay. Because I think yeah. especially in new motherhood, you have like an extra layer of genuinely not knowing what you're doing or what to expect. And you sort right. of are helpless and relying on medical professionals to tell you what to do. Because I think there's a huge sort of information void when it comes to postnatal health and what's normal and what to expect. Yeah. And and it's interesting also, you know, how relatively recent that development is where, you know, for generations, knowledge about pregnancy and birth and new motherhood was something that women taught each other and sort of passed down. There was more of a women's culture that left doctors, not really the authorities on that. You know, it's it's a pretty recent thing that your OBGYN or your pediatrician is kind of the authority on what's normal. Yeah, I do think something's sort of been lost from putting, you know, so much sort of trust in these medical experts for something that there obviously are aspects of it that need <laughs> medical intervention and we need more medical research to understand how to prevent complications, but also is something that other women who've been through experience also have a lot of knowledge to share about as well. You talked in Doing Harm about there being this big gap in the knowledge, particularly with women's health, but also that there is a gap in trust. Are you able to explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So I kind of laid out the two problems as a knowledge gap and a trust gap. So as I said, the knowledge gap is really sort of the result of, of women's bodies and symptoms and conditions being under-researched, uh, you know, whether that's the fact that conditions that disproportionately affect women like autoimmune diseases or, you know, pregnancy complications are are under-researched generally. And so even the very best doctors just kind of lack um, as much knowledge as they could and should have about those things. And then also when it comes to conditions that affect people of all genders, for a long time, women were really 
excluded or underrepresented in clinical research. And we didn't really pay attention to the fact that there are often sex and gender differences. Women can, you know, have different symptom profiles or risk factors for the same condition. Um, and we've really been kind of playing catch up when it comes to that for the last few decades, kind of gaining more knowledge about these differences. But until the 90s, we're not really paying attention to that at all. And so, yeah, the result is that there's just this knowledge gap that affects, you know, providers um, despite their best intentions. And the trust gap, I think, really kind of finds its roots in the history of this concept of hysteria. You know, for really millennia, hysteria has been this kind of catch-all diagnostic category where women's mysterious symptoms were blamed on a wandering womb in ancient Greek times, and then their sensitive nerves in the Victorian era. And then post-Freud, hysteria came to be seen as this psychological disorder that caused physical symptoms. And ever since then, when a patient's symptoms are not readily explained, it's very easy for doctors to say, well, it's, you know, the unconscious mind is producing these symptoms. And I think that affects all patients, but especially impacts women because of this long tendency to kind of see the, the typical hysterical patient as a woman. I thought it was really interesting that you make the point that when we talk about women's health, so often what we actually mean is reproductive health. And that is something that I'm guilty of, actually, I realized is that I say women's health and I'm actually just talking about sort of our intimate health, whereas actually there is a real need to, to research and know more about women's health across the whole spectrum. Yeah, this has been kind of called like bikini medicine, where it's like when we think of women's health, it's sort of this tendency to think of, you know, the breasts and gynecological issues. And yeah, that's just obviously an important part of a lot of women's health. But, you know, women also get heart disease and autoimmune diseases and, you know, all of these things that often can have, as I said, differences according to gender and have been really under-researched. And so, yeah, I think that there's a kind of need to push back against that sort of tendency, which I do think is also rooted in kind of a more general reduction of women to their reproductive functions and abilities. Um, well, of course, at the same time, you know, affirming that reproductive health is is important to people of all genders and <laughs> has also been under-researched and sort of, you know, obviously politicized in some places in the world. So, yeah, kind of recognizing that women's health is is bigger than reproductive health, um, but reproductive health is important in and of itself. We were just talking before we came on today because at the time of recording, the Wade v. Roe decision has just been made by the Supreme Court. And Maya, I know that you have strong views on abortion rights. Can you give me your perspective on why being able to access abortion freely is so important for women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before I became a full-time journalist, I was working in reproductive health and rights advocacy. So this is an issue that has been close to my heart for a long time. I think it's obvious that the ability to have a baby and when you have a baby and to ha not have a baby is really vital to women's ability to control their lives in the U.S., that right has been really kind of been chipped away for decades now and in many states has become harder and harder to actually access that right that has remained constitutionally protected until this morning. I think 
this is in many ways kind of the the end of a very effective strategy to make that harder for women who don't have a lot of financial research resources or logistical resources. It's been hard for people to access for a really long time and now will just be even harder too. So yeah, it's a unfortunate day today in the US. Even before this happened, I was going to talk to you about abortion care in the US and your your own personal experience, but also your understanding from all the research that you've done is to what sort of care provision is provided to women who have abortions in the US? Is there any kind of like advice or support in your recovery afterwards? Or are you sort of left to get on with it? Yeah, so I had an abortion myself when I was 23. Um, and I, at that time, was working at a pro-choice organization. And so in a lot of ways, I felt like, you know, I was talking about abortion every day. I ostensibly knew a lot about the procedure. And and yet I realized when I accidentally became pregnant myself that I actually didn't. First of all, I didn't realize that I knew anybody who'd actually had an abortion, although I suspected I probably did. And once I started asking around, you know, I talked to coworkers and other friends and family members. Um, But I also realized that I, yeah, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about just the kind of practical, logistical parts of, of going through that experience. You know, I had lots of questions about, you know, should I choose a surgical or medication abortion? You know, how long would it take? How much time off work should I ask for? You know, how painful would it be? So, yeah, I, I think it was a real wake-up call to me how much the sort of stigma around this choice really leaves women without a lot of really straightforward information <laughs> when they're going through it. And I think, yeah, that sort of aftercare was a big part of what I was really curious to talk to my coworkers about is like, yeah, how is is this going to be really painful? Like, how long am I going to be recovering? And they certainly, you know, in my memory, they did go over that at the clinic. But, you know, I think and it is a very individual thing, you know, as I've done more reporting on that and talking to other people, I think it is hard to kind of say, you know, because some people have a lot of pain, some people don't, you know, some, and of course, if you're choosing surgical abortion versus medication and how far along in the pregnancy, it can really vary. So I think there is a lot of just uncertainty about that. But yeah, I think to me, the biggest takeaway was just how that kind of really kind of just frank conversation about what's happening after what is a medical procedure is really lost when it's something that's so politicized and stigmatized that people aren't just kind of casually sharing their experiences about it. So I think to me, it feels like, you know, after that experience, I became really interested in abortion stigma and how kind of sharing our own stories can help combat that. And personally felt it was really important for me to kind of be open about my abortion to other people in part to kind of be a resource for other people who were in the same position that I had found myself in, just kind of like not kind of conflicted about the decision, but just kind of a little bit nervous because they didn't know exactly how it was going to go. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you were literally working in this field, presumably dealing with people who are having abortions and advocating for them and things like that on a daily basis. Yeah, actually, when it came down to it, you didn't really know what would be involved in terms yeah. of the physical process and the recovery either. It was pretty 
easy and straightforward. And, you know, it was a very early abortion. So I hadn't been pregnant for a very long time. So I didn't experience any sort of pregnancy symptoms, which I think, you know, some people do, especially if they're in a position where they have to wait for a while to get an abortion, which um, especially now might be the case for a lot of women. You know, that can obviously be uncomfortable when you don't want to be pregnant to be feeling your body going through these symptoms. So I was thankful that I didn't have that. Do you think that part of the reason that you're experience of the process being fairly straightforward and easy was also because you knew what questions to ask um, um, so that you could find out what to expect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I, I, like I said, once I sort of, you know, told my boss and my coworkers that I was taking Friday off because I was getting an abortion, I sat down with people who had had the experience and asked my questions. And so um, yeah, I think being positioned where I was in, in a pro-choice organization and, of course, in a pro-choice community with people who were very supportive, you know, meant that the experience a lot easier for me than it might have been for somebody who lacked that information and also, you know, lacked that sort of support. Because there's definitely research that shows that, you know, if you tell somebody about your abortion who's even a little bit unsupportive of that choice, it really, you know is worse than not telling anybody at all. So it's really important to be able to find people who are going to be, you know, affirming of that decision. Sure, that makes absolute sense. And obviously you were in a way lucky to be in the situation that you are, but I would guess that the majority of women are not working in a, in a pro-choice um, office. Right. And, you know, even if they have supportive friends and family, you know, like you say, it's a gamble, isn't it? As to if you tell them, are they going to approve or are they going to say something that makes everything worse? So, right. but those women who don't have sort of access to kind of word of mouth information, do you think there are adequate resources that exist that explain to women sort of what is involved, how they feel and how normal their life will be afterwards and, and that sort of thing. Do those resources exist? Well, I definitely think they actually do a lot more now than they did. What was it? Gosh, how old am I? Like in, 10 years ago, you know, at that point after I'd had my abortion, I, I wrote about it online. I blogged about it. And in the years since, a lot of women have, you know, similarly kind of told their stories online, on social media. There's been hashtags um, and sort of speak outs and a real kind of concerted effort to break down that stigma through storytelling by people who've had the procedure, you know, both to kind of as kind of a political statement to say, you know, this is my right and this was a good decision for me. But I think also to just demystify it for people when it comes to those more just, yeah, practical and logistical aspects of it. So I do think that for somebody going through the experience now, it's it's a lot easier to kind of, you know, go online and find people's experiences, find support groups where you can talk about your own experience, ask questions. But yeah, I certainly think that there's always a need for more of that. It shouldn't be that abortion is so isolated from the rest of the medical profession, at least in the U.S. You know, we have most people get their abortion in these standalone clinics, not going to their regular OBGYN and saying, you know, I need an abortion. So I think that in an ideal world, abortion would be treated as just a 
standard part of reproductive health care and therefore you would get good information about it from the same person who's, you know, advising you through your birth or giving you your birth control. And so um, unfortunately, that's not the world we live in in the U.S. I wanted to touch on my you mentioned then social media and how it's been a real force for sort of helping demystify and educate people around abortion and I think that's also true to a certain degree with lots of other aspects of women's health particularly you know um, things like breastfeeding and the postnatal period do you think that there is a sort of element that this thing that you were talking about before that we've lost where we sort of lost our sisterhood of like mums and aunts and things passing information on and seeing births happen at home and stuff like that do you think that sort of women are grabbing that territory back in a way by using social media to create that sisterhood network instead. Yeah, I think I think absolutely. That certainly seems to be true when it comes to pregnancy and, and labor and birth. I haven't had kids myself yet and I haven't. And so I feel like I'm not quite in that sisterhood, but I have certainly kind of observed that you know, in in other patient communities that have sprung up around different health conditions, especially things that have been under-researched and neglected in the medical community, you know, it's often, you know, a pattern that women and patients of all genders kind of form these support groups and really just kind of knowledge-sharing networks that I think have been a really powerful force for not only sort of raising awareness and pushing for more research, but also just sort of, yeah, generating a lot of really important information for patients um, that they're not getting from their doctors, you know, advice on managing symptoms or, you know, how to find the best expert when it comes to something like endometriosis or a chronic pain condition that really we don't have a lot of good knowledge that's coming through these official channels. And so... Yeah, I think that that is so important for for patients of, you know, of all types and, again, can kind of offer this really concrete uh, practical information, but then also that sort of validation, you know, that you're not alone, that your experiences are shared among people of all kinds and that, yeah, that you kind of deserve this knowledge and you deserve better treatment than you're getting often. Bearing in mind with social media, there is also a risk, I think, of people spreading misinformation. Do you think that that is an issue within these patient groups of any kind? Or do you think that the positives outweigh those negatives and that people are kind of savvy enough to spot misinformation? I think it's a real concern. I'd say that from what I've seen in in like really kind of specific patient communities around certain conditions, that usually the benefits outweigh the possible harms. And there's often, you know, a kind of self-policing or self-correcting uh, tendency that, you know, is more likely to happen on a, a patient community like that that's sort of distinct than just kind of the internet at large. You know, like, obviously, there's tons of misinformation on the internet. And so I do think that generally, it's, uh, there is a kind of degree of health literacy that is required to kind of sift through all of that information and, you know, be able to spot the stuff that is just somebody trying to sell you something. So yeah, I think it's definitely a concern generally, but I think that the benefits do just outweigh the harms that I've seen. But I do think that 
to the extent that it is a concern, I think we need to focus on the fact that, you know, people are turning to the internet for health information in these communities for a reason, which is that they're not getting what they need from mainstream medicine in a lot of cases. And so, you know, there's, I think, a tendency for doctors to sometimes kind of roll their eyes at people, patients who go online. And and I think that doctors should kind of take more responsibility and realize that like people are going to go online that in a lot of cases that's going to be really good for them and they're going to get information that's valuable to them and there's nothing to be gained by sort of dismissing that or yeah not kind of realizing that doctors should be sort of partnering with patients to ensure that they aren't exposed to misinformation but also kind of validating that there is good information that people can find from fellow patients often. That's a really good point. And um, yeah, I think what you're saying is totally true that doctors will roll their eyes. And this is definitely something that happens to new moms a lot. Sort of like, Mm. oh, you've been reading on the internet, have you? But actually, it's like, well, because you haven't given me the information or I haven't been given the information by professional medical sources. So this is where, like you say, people have to turn because they need information and they need someone to sort of validate the symptoms. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. As a final point, I wanted to ask you if there was one thing that you would change about the world that we live in, and I'm sure there's probably many, many things that you would change, but if there's one thing that you think we should change, what do you think would make a difference to make medicine and science start taking women's health more seriously? I mean, I think on the most fundamental level, the problem is that trust gap, that women aren't trusted as Um, reliable narrators of what's happening in their own bodies, in their own lives. So I think if I could, yeah, wave a magic wand and suddenly make everyone just kind of trust women's authority and and voices in that way, I think that would really fix a lot of these problems. Because I think in, in a lot of ways, the knowledge gap that we have when it comes to women's health kind of is produced by that lack of trust. If we were actually trusting women whenever they said, I'm sick, I'm in pain. And we were kind of starting from that default assumption that that was real. We would be investing in more research on these under-researched conditions. We would be putting resources in different places to ensure that women don't have, you know, complications after birth and they're treated well after birth. We would not be passing laws to take away women's ability to end their pregnancies. So yes, I do think that just kind of trusting women when they say they're sick and what they need is is the first step. Maya's book, Doing Harm, is available now in both the UK and the US. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can order a copy. If you're interested in hearing more from Maya, you can sign up to her newsletter at mayadusenbury.com or follow her on Twitter at Maya Dusenbury. If you've been affected by any of the issues that we've discussed in today's episode, or you have any concerns about your physical or mental health, then please do speak to a relevant medical professional. I've also put a link in the show notes to the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. They offer impartial advice and counselling around abortion. Thank you so much for listening today. Please do like us, follow us, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps please the algorithm gods and means more people will get to see and hear what we've got to say about postnatal health. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to leave us a review, even better. 
don't forget you can also follow mother bodies on twitter and instagram at mother bodies where you can get highlights from each episode and some sneak previews of what's coming up thanks again and see you next time